You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. Many years ago, the LA Times wrote a classic piece. It was of a woman who decided to return to the home that she grew up in, except she did so 20-plus years later. So she showed up on the front door unannounced, and the new homeowners actually let her in. So she began to wander throughout the house, and she made it up into the attic, if you can believe that. And lo and behold, she finds one of her old jackets. She puts it on, and then she puts her hands in the pockets, and lo and behold, she finds a stub a stub that is a claim stub for a shoe repair store. And she hearkened back and realized, oh yeah, I remember I had a pair of black pumps and I lost one of the heels. It just broke off. And she realized she had never picked up the shoes. So she decided as a joke that she would go back to this shoe store and she would try to claim her shoes, just as a joke. So she showed up, and there was a gentleman at the counter, and she presented the claim stub, and she said, I'm curious, are my shoes ready? The gentleman took a look at the stub, and he went back into the back room, and five minutes later, he comes back out triumphantly, and he says, are these black pumps yours? And the woman looks at them and she's like, yes, yes! And he said, that's wonderful. Please come back next Thursday and I'll have them ready. (laughs) Some of you are just getting that now. This man had a master's degree in procrastination. But before we're too hard on this shoe repairman, let's ask ourselves the question, do we procrastinate? Do I procrastinate? Do I often say, well, I will get to that next Thursday? Now, if you're saying, yes, Keith, I acknowledge I procrastinate, take heart. You're not alone. There's been a lot of research in America in particular done on procrastination. And recently, it was discovered that procrastination is one of Americans' greatest struggles. Over 60% of Americans procrastinate, and that's those that I'm sure were telling the truth. There's probably a whole lot more of us. But here's what's astonishing. It is the first place struggle in America tied with, are you ready? Worry and anxiety. That's how bad our procrastination problem is. And you and I understand this when it comes to filing our taxes, when it comes to saving for retirement. Students, when it comes to handing in your homework and studying for exams, when it comes to exercise and diet, when it comes to purchasing Father's Day gifts, I mean Christmas gifts, when it comes to purchasing Christmas gifts, I mean, we, we procrastinate all the time. Now, we tend to just mock it and laugh at it and say, oh, I'm the worst procrastinator, and we think it's no big deal. But what's astonishing, the research shows 
that it affects us negatively physically. It impacts our stress level and our anxiety level. It creates a lack of satisfaction in school and at work. So there are some serious consequences to procrastination. But did you know that we also struggle with spiritual procrastination? By that I mean specifically as it pertains to Jesus Christ's return. I mean, this is something that has even been laughed at over the years. On a bumper sticker or on a t-shirt, we'll read, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. And here's what we think. In our procrastination, we tend to think, well, if I can sense Jesus is going to come back, and I know when he's about to return, I, I just have that spiritual intuition, then I'm going to get serious about him. I'm going to start to live my life to honor Christ. Or, if we're unbelievers, we will say, when the time is right, when I'm retired, when my kids are out of the home, when I'm living the good life, well, then I'll trust in Christ. As if we will have time. Spiritual procrastination, as it pertains to Jesus' return, can be deadly. And here's what we need to be reminded of. This emphasis, Jesus' return, is one of the key themes in Scripture. In the Old Testament alone, Jesus' return is emphasized over 1,800 times. That's in the Old Testament, in 17 different books. Well, fast forward to the New Testament. You've got 260 chapters in the New Testament and 318 verses that talk about Jesus' return. That's one in every 30 verses. Now, here's where it gets even more astonishing. As I'm looking out on you, I know many of you. You have a heart for God, and you believe the basics about Christianity. Did you know, for every one reference to Jesus Christ's first coming, His birth, there are eight times as many references to His second coming. So those Christians who are confused and those non-Christians who say, well, yeah, Jesus Christ was a man. He may have been the Son of God. He was born, but there's no indication that He's going to return. They have not been reading their Bibles, and they are utterly confused because of the emphasis of Scripture. Jesus Christ is coming back. And one of the primary motivations for obedience in the Bible, and I would say it's always present, either explicitly or implicitly, is we ought to obey Jesus, we ought to love Jesus, because He's coming back. So what we need to be about is not looking busy. In other words, trying to fake out God as if that could be done. Instead of trying to look busy, we need to be found faithful. And that's what Luke chapter 12 is going to talk about. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. If you would turn there with me, Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. What we're going to find is Luke and Jesus give us a profound word. And it is this. Prepare for tomorrow, today. In other words, if we're believers, we look forward to standing before Jesus Christ and having to give an account for our lives. If we are not believers in this moment, 
We know that one day we will stand before Jesus Christ and have to give an account of our lives, and we need to trust Him this side of eternity. So we prepare for our eternal tomorrow today. Not tomorrow, because tomorrow is too late. What Jesus does in this section is He tells four mini parables, or what we could call four pictures. He just lays out four pictures that will motivate us to readiness. So let's look at verse 35, the first half of the verse. Jesus says, be dressed in readiness. Now, I love how our English versions sanitize this statement. In the original language, it is, your loins must be continually girded. In other words, gird up your loins. Be ready. Now, it does not make me happy to talk about loins in church. Even on Father's Day, I don't want to talk about loins. The only time I like to talk about loins is when I'm at Safeway purchasing pork loins. But it's not about my happiness. It's not about my comfort. It's about loins in this case. In Jesus' day, men and women wore ropes. No one wore pants like a lot of you are. They wore robes that went down to their ankles. So what would happen when they needed to work or to run or to, or to go into war? What they would do is they would bend down, they would take the bottom of the robe, they would fold it in half, and they would tuck it into their belt. That's what it meant to gird up your loins. Now, we use language like that today, you know, cinch up your belt, you know, hike up your pants, or roll up your sleeves, roll them up. What we're saying is, get ready. And that's what Jesus is trying to motivate us to. He's motivating us to action. Now, look at the second picture in verse 35b. Jesus says, and keep your lamps lit. This speaks to watchfulness, that we need to be continually on watch. You probably know that in Jesus' day, there was no electricity, right? I mean, what happened when you had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? I mean, with lights, I sometimes stub my toes. It's not fun. But in Jesus' day, they used tiny lamps that required you having to fill those lamps with olive oil. You had to trim wicks. You had to be diligent. You had to keep watch to ensure that you always had a lamp lit in case you had midnight guests. Jesus is saying, we always need to be ready in the darkness of this world order for when Jesus returns. Now, this is amusing to me because I am a lights-off guy. I mean, my dad raised me very well. He made sure that we were wise stewards when it came to his electric bill. So, he made sure that when there were lights on in the house, he trained us to turn off the lights. So, now I have learned to do the same thing in our home. If someone leaves a light on in any part of our house, I will find out, and because I'm a preacher, I will say, someone left a light on. I'm going to turn it off now. 
I want to save money on our electric bill. And if a light doesn't need to be on, we turn it off. Now, don't tell anyone this, but I do the same thing at the church. If I see a light on, I want to save your money. I want to make sure that there is no unnecessary light on. Now, I don't call out any staff. I don't call out anyone in our church. I just do it secretly. Not anymore, I guess. I have been saying my entire life, lights off, lights off. Jesus says, lights on. Don't worry about the electric bill. (laughs) Make sure that you are ready for Jesus' return, that you are always watching and waiting. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, we see a third picture in verses 36 through 38, and this one is beautiful because it has to do with a wedding. Listen to what Jesus says, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Now, before we even walk through this verse, I need to touch upon something. We just celebrated Juneteenth Day, and now we're talking about masters, and we're going to talk about slaves in the very next verse. And some of you are saying, what gives? In fact, I've always had issue with all the slavery and master talk in Scripture. I think it's helpful to know just briefly that Luke was the only Gentile writer in the entire Bible. And it's quite possible that he's writing to a Roman audience. In Rome, slavery was big business. Now, for our purposes, let's understand that there were numerous categories of slavery. There was a continuum of slavery. Some were treated very poorly. There is no doubt about it. Scripture even talks about that. Some, the house servants, the stewards... They were treated well. So we have to understand the continuum, but we also need to come face to face with the fact that the Apostle Paul says that the most important title he possesses is that he is a slave of Christ Jesus. So while we are grieved deeply by what our country has done to African Americans over the years, and we know that slavery is a problem throughout the world, we have to acknowledge the world of the New Testament that it wasn't ideal either. We live in a fallen world. But let's still appreciate the spiritual slavery imagery in Scripture. So if we look at verse 36, we can see that there is a wedding feast. In fact, it's even plural in the original languages. And a wedding feast in Jesus' day could go on for seven days. Here's what Jesus is saying. My return is going to be delayed. It's going to be a period of time. Now, some of you are saying, well, maybe seven days. Maybe that translates into seven weeks, seven months, seven years. No, that is not the point. The point is it's been 2,000 years, and it could be another length of time. But it's irrelevant because we know the Savior has delayed, but we need to be ready. Now, here's what's important for our purposes. 
Jesus is portrayed as being at a wedding feast. Now, you want to talk about providential. Lori and I attended two weddings yesterday, and we spent five and a half hours in the car, mostly in traffic. But the weddings were glorious. They were beautiful. I mean, Lori and I got to see Austin and Karina Kwame as husband and wife. We got to celebrate them. We were just filled with excitement, not only about their present, but about their future. Jesus is coming back from a wedding feast. I grew up in the church, and I'm going to be very honest with you. I have had this reoccurring struggle that goes back to when I was a child that the verses that Brad Close read are going to happen to me. That I'm going to be caught doing something that I shouldn't be doing when Jesus returns and I'm going to be ashamed at His coming. And so my view of Jesus' return has always been best case scenario, best case scenario. He's coming back from the DMV. Or he just got through with an IRS audit. He's in a bad mood. And he's going to be angry with me because I haven't been ready. I haven't been faithful. Now, I'm very pastoral in this regard because I know he's going to be pleased to see all of you, but not me, because you are so much more ready and faithful than I am. And so there have been times where I've even been terrified at the prospect of Jesus returning. I want him to delay his coming. I have no problem with that. And yet, I look at this verse and what Jesus chose to say, and if I can be really excited about the Kwamis getting married, how much more is Jesus Christ excited about us, His bride? So we need to change paradigms. When Jesus is coming back, He's not disappointed. He's delighted. He's delighted with us, even with me. He sings over us. He celebrates us because we are His children. Now, what if I actually believed over the course of my life and continued to believe that Jesus was delighted with me? What would God do in and through my life and in and through my ministry? I would argue it would be transformational because my motives my intentions, my heart would be pure, and I would be so excited to see Jesus because He's excited to see me. He's delighted. He's not disappointed. I think we have to change paradigms. At least I, I know I do. If you look at verse 36, you can see that we're supposed to be waiting. Did you see that? We just quickly read over that, but it's important that we understand the significance of that verb. It's a hospitality term. It's used of welcoming a guest. I need to be anticipating Jesus' return. I need to be ready to welcome him. I need to be at the door, ready to invite him in after his celebration. We have a golden retriever by the name of Lucy. There's no other dog like our dog. We love this dog. I have told my family almost every day, you are going to cry more at her funeral than at mine. And I'm not joking. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> Lucy, as a retriever, waits for us, her family, to return. The moment the garage door is opened or the front door is opened, 
she runs to us, barreling with a shoe in her mouth, a sock in her mouth. I kid you not, even watermelon rinds in her mouth. Because if you know anything about retrievers, they have to bring something to their master, to their family. I like to say these are good works of righteousness that Lucy is bringing. But here's the thing. Lucy is waiting. Lucy is watching. And Lucy is bringing gifts. I need to be more like my dog. We need to be more like my dog. Yes, I'm calling all of us dogs, myself especially. What a mindset. May we bring works of righteousness. May we have a zeal for the Savior as He returns. May we prepare for tomorrow, today. Now, verses 37 and 38 are quite intriguing. It continues the third picture or the mini parable. Jesus says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Now, after that last phrase, just put a little asterisk or put a check or an X right there. We're going to come back to that. In fact, if you want to simplify it, circle 37. Circle that verse number. Verse 38 says, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. Now, you're probably wondering, what's the second watch? What is the third watch? There's debate, as there is regarding almost everything. It could be Jewish time. It could be Roman time. I opt for Roman time because typically Luke uses Roman time. But it really doesn't matter. What I would alert you to is most of our English Bibles will have a marginal note that will tell us what time the second and third watches. So if you find anything in your notes, you'll see the second watch is 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch is midnight till 3 in the morning. I would suggest we're in the third watch right now. That Jesus could return perhaps even in our lifetime. So we need to be ready. Now, if you go back to verse 37, I told you I would touch upon this. We're dealing with the wedding feast still. Remember the time of celebration. There's eating, there's drinking, there's partying. We're preparing to meet the Savior. And we want to serve Him. We want to honor Him. And guess what Jesus does? He reverses the roles. The reason that I had you mark up your Bible is there is no other passage like this in the entire Bible. Some of you are saying, well, Keith, what about John 13? I mean, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Yes, He did that on planet earth in time. Luke chapter 12 verse 37 is saying Jesus is going to serve His bride for all of eternity. Yes, we're going to serve Him. We're going to continually cast our crowns before Him. <clears throat> That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about what Jesus is going to do for us. Servant leadership is a part of who Jesus, our Savior, is. Now, here's what happens to me again when I read something like this. 
I can see Jesus doing that for those real spiritual believers that I've pastored over the years, many of you that I'm looking at right now. But Jesus doing that for me? No way. See, I love to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And I can see God's love for the world. It can be hard for me to see his love for me. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're a perfectionist. Maybe you're a driver. Maybe you feel like God is always disappointed with you. See, it's so tragic because as I said a couple of weeks ago, I had the best earthly father. Happy Father's Day, Dad. I'm without excuse. But all of us can have bad theology at times, especially when we apply it to ourselves. Please understand how much God loves you. I know the love I have for my children. You know the love you have for your children or your grandchildren if you're fortunate to have them. Are they rebellious at times? Yes. Sometimes they're rebellious for years. Do they sin on a daily basis? Yes. And yet you love them with all this within you. They're your pride. They're your joy. No matter what they've done, how much more can a perfect God who sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for our sin, how much more can He love us? It's worth contemplating. Now, if we look at the fourth picture, it's found right in verse 39. And this is a tricky one, so we need to make sure we understand it. We've talked about the fact that Jesus is going to delay His coming, the wedding feast. Now we're going to use a different picture and it deals with Jesus' unexpected arrival. Jesus says, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So at this point, we're thinking, oh man, yeah, Jesus is coming like a thief. I'm going to suffer loss. I'm going to be robbed of everything I've ever done. Th that's not the purpose of a parable. The only goal Jesus have, has here is to demonstrate primarily his unexpected arrival. Now, does that mean if we have not attempted to be ready or faithful that we won't suffer loss? I think we'll all suffer loss to one degree or another, but we'll be filled with joy. We'll be so grateful to be in the presence of Jesus Christ and with those who love him. So let's not read into this too much negativity and shame. Let's understand how Jesus is using parables. What he's saying is, in biblical times, and I would argue even today, thieves don't RSVP. I mean, you don't RSVP for church events. So, you know, thieves, thieves don't, right? Can you imagine getting a phone notification? A thief is coming to your home tonight at 830 I mean, that's never going to happen, at least not with good thieves, right? Jesus is saying, my arrival will be unexpected. Some of us wish that Jesus would say, I'm coming back at midnight on December 31st, 2021. But if he made that announcement, we would have a come to Jesus moment on 1159 right before he came. So Jesus wants you to know his coming will be unexpected. He will come like a thief, 
not that he is a thief. Now look with me at verse 40 because Jesus summarizes everything that he has said thus far. He says, you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now again, note the word ready in verse 40. If you go back to verse 35, you have readiness. All six of these verses deal with being ready. And this section is hemmed in. We are to be ready at all times. <clears throat> now look at the phrase, son of man. Does that sound familiar to any of you? If you were with us through Daniel, it does. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is a passage that pointed to the Messiah, the one that we know as Jesus Christ. The Son of Man is going to come, and we need to be ready. Now, at this point, we could go home and enjoy some pork loins and celebrate Father's Day. I mean, this is perfect. What a great way to end this morning's message. The problem is, Peter interrupts Jesus. I know that's shocking to you, but he actually interrupts Jesus because there's a larger crowd present. And so, Peter wants to ask a question. Look at verse 41. Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Peter wants to know, Jesus, are you talking to the apostles? the 12. Are you talking to kingdom leaders, a lot of the other apostles? Are you talking to the scribes and the Pharisees? Are you talking to the entire crowd that's present? This is the million shekel question. But here's what's beautiful. Jesus doesn't explicitly answer him. Now, as a professor myself, I used to love to do this to my students. I still do today. Student asks a question in class, and I say, thank you so much for that question. And then I don't answer it fully, hoping that the student will be able to come to her or his own conclusion. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Here's what Jesus does. Just like we had four pictures or four mini parables, he's going to give us four responses of a servant, of a steward. And if the shoe fits, wear it. Because in this crowd, we either have disciples or prospective disciples. And I would argue Jesus was all about building disciples who bring him to his world. So he's talking to anyone who has ears to hear. In verses 42 through 44, he speaks to disciples, those who know him. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Now, if you noticed, we move from servant or slave to steward. The terms are really interchangeable to some extent in this passage. What is a steward? A steward is simply a manager. The steward manages his master's estate. That includes his finances, his property, even the management of his family. If a, stu if a steward is faithful and sensible, he'll be blessed by his master. If he's not, he will not be blessed. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, he's primarily addressing this to the apostles, to disciples, to what we would call ministry leaders. 
He's speaking to those that will feed others, who will lead others, who will shepherd others. And He wants us to be faithful and sensible in our stewardship as Christian leaders. But it also has application to all of us because we're all stewards, we're all managers. We have time, talents, treasure, we have the truth of God's Word, we have relationships that He's entrusted to us. We have to be found faithful, which is why we've said we're going to prepare for tomorrow today. Now, verses 43 and 44 continue the stewardship theme. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Now, this is wonderful. The steward who is faithful in his management will be given more to be faithful with. Now, this is an important truth. We tend to think, if I'm faithful in my job, God will give me the promotion that I want. If I'm faithful in raising one child, He will give me a dozen. I don't know who wants a dozen, but it is Father's Day, so if you want a dozen, that's wonderful. And we tend to think God will give us these blessings immediately. We have two errors in this thinking. First of all, Jesus never says He will give us what we want immediately. Remember this context? It's referring to when He returns. If we've been faithful in little, He will give us much when He comes back. If He gives us more to be faithful with in this life, praise Him. But it doesn't always work that way. He also may not give us exactly what we want that has to do with the faithfulness in our responsibility, whether it's children, whether it's work, whether it's church ministry. The call is to be faithful nonetheless. What type of managers are we in our family relationships, in our church relationships, in our work relationships? What have we as individuals done with our management, with our stewardship? One day, being found faithful will mean more to you than you can possibly imagine. Because the blessings of these 70 or 80 years are nothing compared to 70 million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, and I've just begun counting. We're talking eternity. God cares how you manage your life and ministry. He really does. Now, we've had a wonderful time talking about this. The next two verses are not going to be so wonderful because they involve the Jewish religious leaders like the scribes and the Pharisees and other contemporary religious leaders who reject Jesus and don't teach the truth. Verses 45 and 46, but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces. The slave's going to be dismembered. Now, remember, this is a parable. It's figurative. The Word of God will pierce him and cut him. And this slave will be assigned a place with the unbelievers. The religious leaders who had the bulk of the Old Testament memorized, the contemporary teachers 
who have their own television program, the authors, the quote Christian celebrities who are not in a right relationship with Jesus and do not teach His Word, who likely never knew Him, will have a day of accounting, and they will spend eternity separated from Him. These are those like Judas and the scribes and Pharisees who never knew Jesus personally. This is a sobering reality. And it's interesting, back in Luke chapter 11, we're coming out of a passage that you may not have looked at, but it's in all the Gospels except John. Jesus performs miracles that are intended to point to Him. And the scribes and Pharisees say, He did those miracles by the power of Beelzebub, which means Satan. They rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, it would be better for the towns that rejected Him and the gospel to ultimately have never heard because Sodom will have an easier time on the day of judgment than these cities and these individuals. In verses 47 and 48, we have two more examples of servants or stewards and their responsibilities and what they did with them. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of, it, worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. So here you have the third and fourth response of the servants or the stewards. One is generally unfaithful, and he or she receives lashes. The other one receives just a few lashes because he or she has been ignorant of God's person and God's will. Here's the point. Everyone who has ever lived or will ever live is judged. And if you're thinking right now, I'm going to leave right now while he's talking because if I don't have to hear anymore, I'm going to be judged less. No, it's too late for you. It's too late. And here's what's worse. You have a copy of God's Word, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we can give you a copy of God's Word. And if you have a smartphone, you have a copy of God's Word or could have access to a copy of God's Word. So we are without excuse. So people are immediately tempted to say, well, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? Two words, creation and conscience. Romans 1 and Romans 2 tell us we know enough about God to at least respond as He draws us, as He works in our hearts and minds. We will be condemned for the knowledge that we possess even though we are sinful. We are without excuse. And that's sobering. Jesus concludes with one of the greatest principles in all of Scripture. He says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of Him, they will ask all the more. Note, first of all, the word everyone. This tells me that as Jesus closes His parables, He's really been speaking to everyone. Anyone who wants to be a disciple, who is a disciple, who is a prospective disciple. Since we all are accountable, Jesus says you've got to do with what you've been given. Privilege brings responsibility. 
Do we bear responsibility living on the east side of Seattle, attending a Bible church in the 21st century with technology, with wealth, with education, with experience, with gifting? I don't want to ruin your Father's Day, but that is sobering. That's what humbles me and scares me when I think of what God has entrusted to me and what I've done with what He's entrusted. I feel like so little. I've done so little. But this ought to motivate me to prepare for tomorrow today, to stop making excuses for myself, stop feeling badly for myself, and actually love the Savior and love His appearing and want to serve Him and want to know Him more intimately and passionately. Here's the truth. If you're wired like me, you never feel ready, and you never feel faithful. That's me. And if that's me, I know it's some of you as well. Here's what I've had to really wrestle with as I've prepared this passage. Christianity is not a religion for the ready and the faithful. Christianity is a relationship with the always ready and always faithful God. If you're looking for your readiness and your faithfulness to win the day, it won't. That's why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would be a shame for you to leave this place with a sense of shame and guilt and paralysis. That, that's not what we want. We want you to leave this place with a glorious view of God and His Son, the Lord Jesus, and the gospel. The good news that will empower you and enable you to live for Christ. Now, with that said, what's the emphasis of these parables? Be ready and be faithful. Prepare for tomorrow today. One of my favorite stories is of Satan and his demons discussing how they can really keep lost people from trusting in Jesus and also how they can render Christians ineffective. So they have a discussion and one demon comes forward and says, I know how we can ruin the souls of men and women. Let's tell them that the Bible is not the Word of God. Satan says, are you kidding me? I mean, the Bible is the greatest book ever written. It's the greatest selling book in human history and probably always will be. People will always believe to some extent that the Bible is the Word of God, no matter how I've confused people and turned people away from the Bible. That's not going to win the day. Another demon comes up from a darker part of hell, and he says, I've got it. Let's tell them there truly is no heaven or hell. Satan says, not in your life. Eternity is present in the hearts of men and women. Everyone has this sense that there is a heaven, an afterlife. There's a nirvana, there's a paradise, there's a heaven. And some actually still believe in hell. That's not going to do it. Finally, there's this nasty, ghoulish demon who comes to the forefront from the darkest place in hell, and he says, Lord, I have an idea. Let's tell them there's no hurry. 
that they can take as long as they want to trust in Jesus, that they can take as long as they want to get serious in their relationship with Jesus. Let's tell them there's no hurry. Satan said, that's it. Be gone at once. Prepare for tomorrow today. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before you acknowledging that we're not ready and we're not faithful. But you are ready and faithful, and you've sent a ready and faithful God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to perfectly fulfill the law and all of your expectations, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead. And if we simply will believe in Him, we can be ready. We can be faithful by your grace. Would you help us to trust in Jesus Christ today? If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you can do so today. You can simply acknowledge your sin, that you haven't been ready, that you haven't been faithful, and say, Jesus, I want to give you my sin in exchange for your salvation. I want to believe in you today. You can do that. I'd love to talk to you at the Welcome Center afterwards and hear about how you've trusted in Christ for the first time. Father, help us as a people to prepare for tomorrow today. Help us to honor you with our stewardship and put you first as your stewards. Thank you for all that you've entrusted to us. We give you praise that you are the great Father and that your Son is the one who loves us so much. We give you praise in your great name. Amen.